We have been away from the Gospel of John for a while with the Christmas season, but now we're coming back to this Gospel of John, and you might remember we're, we're right in the middle of what's sometimes called the upper room discourse or the farewell discourse of our Lord. Our passage today is John chapter 16, uh, verses 16 through 24. Again, I always encourage you to, if you can't follow along in, uh, in, a, in your Bible and, and watch as I read, John 16, verses 16 through 24. A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me, because I go to the Father. Then some of his disciples said among themselves, what is this that he says to us? <clears throat> a little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, you will, not, you will see me, and because I go to the Father. They said, therefore, what is this that he says? A little while. We do not know what he is saying. Now Jesus knew that they desired to ask him, and he said to them, Are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said a little while and you will not see me, and again a little, little while and you will see me? Most assuredly I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice, and you will be sorrowful but your sorrow will be turned to joy. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow. But I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. And in that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. So we're, again, we're in the upper room discourse or the farewell discourse. Our Lord is celebrating the Passover meal with his disciples. And that's a wonderful celebration. But he's also making clear that this is sort of a farewell evening. He's making it clear, at least for us as we look back 2,000 years, to the disciples, there's a lot here that leaves them wondering and questioning. Who's good, someone's going to, is going to betray you? Who? It couldn't be me, could it? And, and other things. I'm going away, he has said. What do you mean? And so this, this night of, of celebration of the Passover is sending a mixed message. And, and the Lord is, through that mixed message, he's trying to prepare them for what's ahead. He says in verse 16, a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while you will see me because I go to the Father. Now, again, he's already mentioned that he is going to be departing. Back in chapter 14, upper room discourse again, he said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. But there he told them, I'm going away to prepare a place. In chapter 14, verse 19, a little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Very similar language, but now he's going to kind of develop that somewhat. Here's that talk of a, a little while. And that has the disciples talking among themselves. Uh, the, the way the language reads, just as some of them gathered over by the side, if you will, and started talking about what does this mean? 
A little while you'll see me. Again, a little while you won't see me because I go to the Father. And they said, therefore, what is this that he says a little while? What is, what is he talking about? But apparently this is kind of a quiet discussion. Now, some of you have been students in one context or another, and perhaps all of you. And, and I have been a student and a teacher. And sometimes I will look at my classroom and I can see in the very midst of my giving gems of wisdom and truth, there'll be a little huddle of conversation. And I could only guess what they're saying. Well, in this case, Jesus knows exactly what they're talking about. You're talking about that little while, aren't you? <laughs> it's a new concept to them. Apparently, in their three years with them, he's never just left them and gone away for a while. Okay, he's, you know, he's gone off and prayed, but they knew he was going off to pray. And on one occasion, he says, you go ahead, I'll follow. And they got in the boat, and he followed. But this idea of him just going away for a while and I'll come back, that's not been his method of ministry. The whole point is he wanted them with him to see him in all aspects of life and ministry. But now he says, I'm going away for a little while. It doesn't make sense to them. And especially, why would he leave now? I mean, it is so obvious to them the time is right Passover is a time of great expectation in Israel. And, and at this time in particular, they often looked for the Messiah. You remember when we celebrate our annual Passover Seder, we set up an empty chair for Elijah. Well, that's a Jewish tradition because the Bible says that Elijah will come before the Messiah. And since Passover is a time of, of deliverance, they set up a chair just in case the prophet Elijah should show up. Well, really what they're doing is it's reminding them, we're looking back. Uh, to 1,500 years before Christ of God's deliverance of the people of Israel. But we're looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. And Elijah comes first. And, and so here, here in this season of excitement, Passover, the, the, the city is packed. The, 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 there's a, a celebration, anticipation. The thrill and excitement of that Palm Sunday ride into town. People calling out messianic greetings to, to Jesus. And many people didn't miss the fact that he came riding in on the colt of a donkey and Zechariah says, that's exactly how Messiah will come. Jesus was showing that he was the Messiah come. Why would you leave now? Why? What's the point? You know, if you're coming to be the Messiah, now's the time. If you're not coming to be the Messiah, why would you leave it? And then why would you come back? What's he talking about? <clears throat> Again, we often take comfort. His own disciples who spent those years with him wrestled with understanding what Jesus is teaching. So when you find yourself wrestling, what's he talking about here? Welcome to the club. So, so, so what is he talking about? I'll... I'll Bible commentaries differ in what this little time is. Some see this is the, his, his going away is the cross. And when he says you're coming again, some take that coming again as his, they'll see him spiritually with the sending of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. 
Some take the going away for a while to be the cross, but his coming again to be when he comes up to set up his kingdom at the second coming. I think the most natural way to read this is the going away is the cross. We all agree on that one. But rather, the going away for a little while and you'll see me again with joy, well, that's the resurrection. Now, the little while, this is Thursday night. Friday afternoon, he'll be crucified and buried before sundown. That's a little while. So when he says, in a little while, you'll, I'm going to leave you. You won't see me any longer. And in a little while, the most natural way to read that is it's about the same time frame. Three days later, they'll see him again. And they'll see him with joy. The language sounds real similar to what John 20, 20 tells us. Uh, there on the, the, at the resurrection of Christ, John 20, 20 tells us, when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. They saw him. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. What did he say? You're going you're to rejoice when you see me. John 20 says, they rejoiced when he saw him. So that little while is the time between his burial, because they'll see him on the cross. They'll see him taken from them in the garden. But they won't see him when he's in the grave. And then they'll see him at the resurrection. So once again, our Lord's telling him about the cross, isn't he? He's, he's telling him the cross is coming. Again, I keep everything in this, in this upper room discourse, this farewell discourse, I keep hearing it as like a loving father, a loving grandfather, uh, giving parting words to his family. I'm going. I want you to know this. Here's what I want you to do. Here's how I want you to be ready. And so Jesus is doing all he can to prepare them. I'm leaving you. But notice, he speaks in guarded terms. In a, in a little while, you won't see me again. Why doesn't he just say, here it is. Tonight, I'll be arrested. I'll go through a series of unjust trials Friday morning. And I'll be crucified Friday and buried. You won't see me again. Why does he skip those details? I'm sure there's, well, first of all, in his wisdom, he knew it was best. But I think he's vague because for one thing, if he told them they're about to arrest me, what would they do? That's it, Jesus. Come with us. We're taking you out of town. Or whatever else it may have been. They may have been gathering up weapons. We're going to put, we can resist them. Whatever it might have been. So he's keeping it vague. And I think partly too, um, he wants, he's really planting these truths so that they'll look back later and say, that's what he was talking about. Now I get it. So he's already preparing them for the future. And so he wants them, I think, especially to know he wasn't taken by surprise. I think about the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Remember those two? Jesus had died, was buried. They stayed through the Sabbath there in town because 
can't really travel. And then they, the Sabbath was over, and so they started walking away towards Emmaus. <coughs> Remember on the way, Jesus comes up to them and says, what are you guys talking about? Again, when God asks a question, it's not because he needs information. Talk to me. What, what do you, and they say, how can you, what, you don't know? Are you the only person in Jerusalem? By now, there's two million people there for Passover. Are you the only one in Jerusalem who doesn't know what's been happening? Now, he doesn't say, no, I don't know. He just says, what things? You know, tell me about it. And they said, you know, we were following one we thought would be the Messiah. But basically what they're saying is, I guess we were wrong. And that's, for three years, they've been thrilled to think the Messiah is here. And then at the cross, I guess we were wrong. They were crushed. He wants them to know he wasn't taken by surprise. This was the plan all along. But again, he, he does it to help them later when he says, a little while, I'll be, you won't see me. A little while again, you'll see me. So what he's saying is, this is plan A. This is the plan. And I want you to know, it's not because uh, I, I was caught by surprise or I didn't get it right. This is the plan. And he wants them to understand his death and burial is not the end of the story. He's going to be gone for a little while and then he's going to return. Again, we look back from the perspective of history and that all makes clear sense. He was gone, buried, and then resurrected. He says, you will not see me and again in a little while and you'll see me. Now again, for the, for the disciple, these words are vague and unclear. But he's giving them enough to know this is my plan. It'll, it'll be clear to you later. But this is the plan we had all along. And the cross is not the end. A little while you won't see me. And a little while you will. The cross is not the end. It's not over at the cross. Verse, 20, uh, verse 19, now Jesus knew they, were, they desired to ask him. And he said, are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said a little while and you'll not see me? And again, a little while you will see me. Notice the repetition here. He's really hammering on this just a little while. So now he decides to provide them some information. You're, you're talking among yourselves. I know what you're talking about. Let me, let me give you some more details. Verse 20, most assuredly I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world rejoice and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. Those words weep and lament, um, those are strong words. They are loud words. In our culture, we often are kind of quiet in our, in our weeping, in our mourning. In the quiet tears go to the corner of the room. In the Middle Eastern culture today, but also in those times, uh, it, was a, it was a loud event. In fact, uh, you know, when we, go, when we have a funeral, we make preparations for all that's happening. 
they expected at a funeral there would be loud wailing. But what do you do if there's not loud wailing? That would almost dishonor the one who died. That we're not, so they would hire wailers. <clears throat> so I guess if you were someone with a really strong voice, uh, they, would, they would hire a committee of wailers. And so in one sense, that was a way of announcing to the community, we've got a death here. But it's also saying, um, and he's missed. So he's, but he said, you're not going to have to hire wailers. You're going to weep and lament. That's because of the cross. They will be devastated. They won't be just a little sad. They'll be devastated by the loss. <clears throat> Have you ever noticed how, how, how little the Gospels spend on the cross? Often we'll have sermons that will go into graphic detail of everything that happened on the cross. The Gospels kind of pull a veil, of dis a discreet veil, and, and just give us some bare details. Because it's not the gore of the cross that's the issue. It's what it was doing in terms of our atonement. And notice that we, he says, you're going to weep and wail. Read through the Gospels. Where do you see that? And again, there's this, this veil. What were those disciples doing? We know John was at the cross with the women. The other disciples took off at the garden and were maybe viewing from a distance. But we just don't see the weeping and wailing. I'm not saying it didn't happen, but you know, it's not described for us. But I'm sure they wept. Bitter tears, loud tears. They wept for the one they loved. They spent three years with him. Uh, and they left everything for him. They left their business. They left, their, they left everything behind so they could follow him and serve him. What a joy. How sad it was to lose him. They wept for the hopes that had been crushed. <coughs> Again, I think of the Emmaus disciples. They had put everything, everything on Jesus being the Messiah. And they just felt now we were wrong. And you know, the second guessing, how could we have been so wrong? And, and what do we do now? And how they wept, I think, when they realized how they'd failed him. You know, one of you will betray me. Because later on, that becomes clear, that's Judas. But what about Peter, denying he even knew Jesus? What about the disciples running in the garden, away to get away from the, the, the soldiers? Don't you know those days were filled with self-blame, self-hate? Couldn't have done more. Thomas, remember when Thomas, when, when Jesus said, we're going to go and see a Lazarus, and they're saying, Lazarus, that's close to Jerusalem. Jesus, they're ready to kill you. And Thomas says, well, if, they're, if he's going to go and they're going to kill him, let's go and die with him. That sounds great, but in reality, you don't see that happening in the garden. They don't come before the guards and say, well, if you're taking him, you've got to take me. Again, I feel like how they must have wept 
of how they felt, how they felt they failed Jesus. And then there's these words, you're going to weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. How the mocking crowds must have deepened their grief. I read the accounts of the Gospels and, and you see that people are actually standing at the cross mocking this dying man. I don't get that at all. How can you mock someone at, the, at a time like this? But they did. They delighted in his horrific death. It kind of reminds me of the sting that we, <coughs> we experienced in America on 9-11 when the terrorists flew those planes into the buildings and 3,000 died. And then did you see that they flashed to the streets of Gaza and you saw people cheering and, and they were going out into the streets carrying plates of, 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 of sweets to celebrate, to celebrate that terrorist attack. And, and the same thing happened on October 7th in Israel during that terrorist attack. There, there were joyful celebrations, dancing in the streets of Gaza. What does that tell us about man's heart? But how that must have hurt. As that hurts me to see people like that, how can you celebrate that? How that must have hurt them more. How can you celebrate the death of the one sinless man that's ever lived? the death of the one perfect man who's ever lived, the lovingest man, the kindest man, the man who, who probably healed your children. <clears throat> How they must have wept. And he says, you will weep and the world rejoices. But then he goes on and says, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. Notice how he phrases that. He doesn't say your sorrow will be followed by joy. Your sorrow literally will become joy. The very, very thing that broke their hearts will lift their hearts in joy. And then he gives an illustration. What do you, how can that be? And he speaks of, of birth, childbirth. A woman, when she's in labor, has sorrow. Because her hour has come, but as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Now, the pains of childbirth are mentioned often in the Bible. And often it's experienced, it's, a, it's, a, it's an expression of great sorrow and great grief. It's been the common experience of mothers throughout history. And so when he says this, this is something they all understand. But he makes a very important point. The very process that causes the pain also causes joy. And the, the pain is transformed, and he says, forgotten by the joy. That's been my experience. You know, I got over the hardships of childbirth pretty quickly. This is why I'm going to have to get out of here quickly. When after. <laughs> so if you see... A trail of women following me with bricks. <laughs> Help me. What he's illustrating is, is here the cross. The cross would bring great sorrow to the disciples. And again, I do not have the words to adequately express that sorrow. 
And he left them in that sorrow for days, three days. But that same cross that was sorrow is also joy. It becomes a fountain of joy. So the joy isn't in spite of the cross. The joy is because of the cross. And so that's where the childbirth. It's, it's both a sorrowful thing and a joyful thing. And the joy outweighs the sorrow. And so us, the very process of the injustice that brought physical, emotional, spiritual pain to Christ, that very process is what paid for our guilt and our shame and purchased our redemption, our forgiveness, our adoption as, as sons of God. That wicked cross became a, the fountain of joy. Verse 22, he says, Therefore you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. What's the transformation? The resurrection. Because all of a sudden, what they took to be a horrific defeat is actually a victory. Maybe you've gone to a ball game, and... Uh, it is so clear your team has lost. Some people say, well, let's not make it worse. Let's go ahead and get out of here and get into the car. And have you ever, sometimes there have been games where they're getting into the car and all of a sudden, as they're kind of quietly getting into the car, all of a sudden they hear the home team screaming with joy and they're thinking, oops. <clears throat> we took the sorrow. We could have been in there screaming for joy. Turn on the radio. What's going on? How that joy, how that sorrow was transformed. Well, at first they had a hard time believing him. Remember, Jesus even says here, give me some food, I'll eat it, and I'll show you it's really me. It's not just a figment of your imagination. What a transformation. It was hard to, to, to take. I mean, do you remember Thomas? He says, I'm, I'm not going to believe it. I will not believe it. I, I don't care what you tell me. Unless I, I, I touch the wounds myself, I'm not going to believe he's risen. Next week, Jesus is back. Hey, Thomas, come here and touch. Now, Jesus, at that point, Thomas doesn't need to touch. He falls in worship, my Lord and my God. Joy is, 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 is there, and he says, and it's a joy no one will take from you. The joy of what the cross accomplishes for us is a joy that cannot be taken. He's talking here about our, sin, our salvation. When we trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior, when we receive the gift of salvation, the cleansing from guilt and sin, and all that comes with us, being brought into his family, no one can take that joy from us. Uh, S. Lewis Johnson illustrates such joy in the life of a friend of his. I want to read you kind of an extended quote. He said, I have a very fine Christian friend, a Bible teacher of ability and a man of God. He's now in his 80s. And for a few years now has had a cancer. He is still out in his itinerant Bible teaching ministry, undaunted that his condition can only get worse as the months go by. Recently, he wrote me a letter to say, 
I am now on hormones and the pain is not so great. My back does trouble me. Then the red cells, the red blood cells are weakened and destroyed by the cancer. The doctors tell me if it grows worse, I'll have to have a transfusion. He then adds, and one can see in his words the thrill of the personal relationship with God through Christ. I have learned that all the whys, whens, wheres, and wherefores in life are in the strong hands of Jesus Christ. I bow to his will and say, our Jesus does all things well. Well, I think that's a word for each and every one of us. Here's a man in the pains of sickness and the soon approach of death. Listen to his, his expression of faith, a joy that cannot be taken. I have learned that all the wise whens, wheres, and wherefores in life are in the strong hands of Jesus Christ, I bow to his will and say, our Jesus does all things well. My brothers and sisters cling to that. And if you have yet to know the Lord Jesus Christ and you've been battling with the whys and the wherefores and the whens, find in Christ the answer to all your questions. Who? Who holds you? <clears throat> he goes on then and says, In that day you'll ask me nothing. Most assuredly I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. First he says, you'll ask me nothing. And I think that that's, he's not, that's, that's a different word than the later word of ask in, in those verses. <clears throat> I think here he's talking ask as in questions. The time is coming when I'm no longer going to be your teacher. The Holy Spirit will do that. And so our relationship is going to change. You'll see me again, but it's going to be different. And then he goes on to talk about prayer. And I say, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Here he speaks of the privilege of prayer in the name of Christ. Now, sometimes we get a little sloppy and we use that in the name of Jesus as if it's kind of like a magical incantation. I've said in Jesus' name, so that means it's a real prayer. He's, he's, he's not thinking it's those saying those words gets it answered. But when we come to God, it's in the name of Jesus. We come with his authority. We come um, trusting in him. And so when we come, the Father doesn't see us, he sees Jesus. James Montgomery Boyce quoted from a, a, a writer of the previous generation, R.A. Torrey. And he wrote a helpful book on, on prayer. And so he, he said, that, so it is when I go to the bank of heaven, I go to God in prayer. I have nothing deposited there. I have absolutely no credit there. If I go in my own name, I will get absolutely nothing. But Jesus Christ has unlimited credit in heaven. And he has granted to me the privilege of going to the bank in his name on my checks. And when I thus go, my prayers will be honored, honored to any extent. And so what he's saying is, God answers our prayer because we're asking in the name of Jesus. And we can do that because we are in him when we trust in him as Savior. 
Are you in Christ? Can you speak to God in Jesus' name? Have you trusted in him as your savior through faith, recognizing your sin? Have you come to him for forgiveness and salvation? Let me close in prayer, and then we'll go to the Lord's table. Father, thank you for these words of Jesus. May they bring us peace and confidence and hope and trust in you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.